Welcome to the Who's He podcast. In an occasional series, we're going to be talking about those people who've been lucky enough to travel with the Doctor over the last 50 or so years. Yes, the companions. Those people who have stepped through the doors of the TARDIS, have been shown the wonders and the dangers of the universe, and travelling through time and space. And of course, we'll be discussing the actors who have brought these iconic roles to life. My guest this week for this companion special is a writer for Starburst magazine and one of the hosts of the Blue Box podcast. It is none other than J.R. Southall. Welcome to the show, J.R. Hello, Phil. And I've got to tell you, it's Southall, not Southall. Oh, you the... should know that, being from the southeast. I know. Well, you sound northern, so I said Southall. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, there is a place in the north called Southall. I know. I was trying to make you feel at home and everything. But it's spelled differently. Oh, dear. Have I committed a cardinal sin there? Well, you've committed a sin. I don't know if it's cardinal. I'm not going to punish you for it. Oh, thank God for that. <laughs> it's, it's a bit hard over audio, but... <laughs> well, I can find ways. I can find ways. No doubt you will. <laughs> well, in fact, I am going to. I'm going to punish you for it. Go I'm on. going to take you on a slight detour via Omega's Tat Corner. Oh. And I'm going to ask you about a book that you wrote an essay for. Oh, Yes. You and who else? (laughs) (laughs) Tell me, well, obviously, I mean, for anybody who doesn't know, I was the editor of this book. Yes, you were indeed. A very fine book it is as well, and for a very, very good cause. Oh, you have a copy? I do indeed. Ah, brilliant. How much of it have you read? Because it is a huge book. It is a a huge book. I'm probably about less than a third of the way through it at the moment. I, I think it's a book you can just sort of dip in and out of as and when... You want to, um, yeah. because there's some gonna... fantastic stories in there, like personal views of watching television, and it's great. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, for anybody who doesn't know, the, the conceit is it's a history of British telefantasy through the eyes of the people who watched it, rather than you know being a sort of production diary or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So basically, it's just essays, about 175 of them, I think, uh, about, about watching the television, rather than sort of being reviews of the things they've watched. But the reason why, well, well, tell me yourself, Phil. I mean, uh, obviously you and I knew each other, but mm-hmm. was was that how you found out about it from seeing it on my Facebook or whatever? It was indeed. It was indeed. Yes, I'd sort of, I've been aware of the um, the other weighty tomes you put together as well, but predominantly yeah. just for Doctor Who, really. Um, but as this, this one was a bit more far-reaching. And it's about any kind of um, sort of British telefantasy rather than just Doctor Who, which is what I, I normally talk about and yeah. everything. It was just a chance to do something different as well. Um, and also I selected something you can't actually watch. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say the programme you selected couldn't be more different, really, if it tried, could it? And not really, no. <laughs> never been repeated, never been on DVD. Um, I've, it's not I've, even on YouTube or anywhere, is no, it? No, it's not. It's not. It's um, totally missing. Um, it's got to be there in the BBC archive somewhere. I'm hoping it's going to sort of 
crop up on the BFI website or something one day, or maybe well, in the, B, or the, the recently BBC recently Store. Shop. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Yeah. yeah, that would be nice. I mean, there's so much stuff on there already, but they're going to add whole load more. Oh, I do hope so because I, I, I mean, I like yeah. to, I like to just see it now, just to see. I mean, if anyone hasn't read the book, I selected a program called Badger by Owlite. Um, and it was a, I think it's a three-part supernatural story. Went out in um, 1982, exact time as the Falkland War, Falklands War kicked off. Um, yeah. And um, actually, for something to actually be broadcast at that time of night, uh, when the news is usually extended for for things like that, um, it went out unhindered. Um, that, that's about the only information I could actually find out about it, <laughs> to be honest. And the rest was just all from memory. And, well, um, that was the that was the what the book was really about: writing from memory, writing about your memories, your memories of watching these things. So your essay was perfect. Oh, thank you very much. Thank well, it was perfect much. after I sent after it you back edited, to you yes. and asked for a tweak, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's quite a big tweak, actually. Yes. But, well, um, yeah, but you just did the classic thing that most people do. Yeah, they and, did. You know, so many people do do this that it was. Um, it wasn't necessarily that it was becoming an issue, but you know what? Hmm. There were so many essays that did this thing in the book already, yeah. and a few of them, I'd just edited it out myself. Mm-hmm. But because it was you, I thought, A, I'm not going to do that to you. Fair off. And, Thank you very much. And B, I, because it was the first time you'd done one of these, and it was, because yes. it was you, I kind of wanted it to be a bit special. So I thought, no, what I'll do is, hopefully I won't offend you, by sending it back to you and saying, look, you've done this, which is kind of not really an issue, but you know what I mean? It mm. would be better without this thing. Yeah. And I asked you to rewrite it and um, leave out the thing that you'd done. Yes. I suppose I ought to say the thing that you'd done, hadn't I, really? Yes, I didn't. <laughs> I hadn't murdered someone in the, in, within the page no. or, or committed to a murder or something. No, I'd, I'd done the classic Dear Reader thing a lot, hadn't I? Yeah. yeah. There's a... So many of the essays have got, you know, the, 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 the author of the essay asking the reader of the book, I bet you're wondering why I've, I'm writing about this. Mm. And the thing is, no, the person who's reading the book isn't really wondering why you're writing about it. They're reading what you've written about it. Mm. Exactly. So, you know, so yeah. it's kind of inherent in the essay. So you don't really need to... So, 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 so you don't really need to say it out loud, does it? No, were? you don't have to point it out to everybody, do you? Yeah, so I yeah. so there's a few essays in there that still do that, you know, and some of them do it quite heavily. But I wanted, you know, to cut that down as much as possible. And you'd written such a lovely essay that I knew if I sent it back to you and said, "Look, do it again and do it without this." Yeah. Thing. And you know, in the end, you've turned in a, a great essay, one of the highlights of the book. Oh, thank you very much. It's very kind of you to say so. I well, I'm only really saying that because I'm on your podcast. Well, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, yeah, suck, suck it, it up, is. Suck it up to me, we'll get you everywhere, mate, I'm telling you. <laughs> no, I'm sure anybody who's read the book, that's... I tell you what, not just because you managed to do it from memory, which makes it stand out anyway, because, you know, a lot of the time people are writing about things that they watched back then, but have seen since, and so they're not writing it. Well, yeah, well, they can easily They're not refresh them it from me- that perspective, yeah. No, I mean, they can easily refresh their memories from their copies of their DVD or Blu-ray as well, so... Um, yeah, exactly. or, or any or any article that's been written on you know that's floated around the internet. Um, but for Badger by, uh, by our light, there is naff all really to, uh, <laughs> to fall so back. So your on. essay is actually 
an absolute paradigm for what the book should be. Mm. And, and, you know, and what, in most other cases, it can't be because, you know, you can't help it, but people will have seen these other programs in the meantime since they were first broadcast. Yeah, so yours right. is almost, almost unique. Yeah. Well, I, I, it's certainly unique from from that point of view. Yes, yeah, certainly, <laughs> certainly. So, <laughs> oh well. But actually, um, while we're on the subject, Joe, please everybody where they can purchase this book as well. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, it's called. Well, it's easy enough to find. It's called You and Who Else, and it's edited by me, J.R. Southall. So, if you go on Amazon or eBay or whatever, just type in those two things. But if you want to go to the website because I've got a little website as well that looks after all the books, so you can find them all in one place. And it's weebly.com. No, hang on. Oh, oh. I can't remember. <laughs> I don't have it in front of me. You can find it by um, typing in po.st forward slash watching books. There you go. And that'll Easy take to, find. to the website. Yeah. Exactly. And all donations, or basically, I say any all purchase all of the book, yeah, all royalties yeah. will go to the Terence Higgins Foundation. Or yeah. trust, sorry, I should say. So, uh, yeah, a very, very worthy cause. And it's a brilliant book as well. So it is well worth your money. It really is from, from both sides. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, if people follow the links and find um, you and who, we've got loads more books of this kind on the go all the time. Yes. It's sort of grown into a little cottage industry. It has, actually, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I, that, did, I was say, is that well, something you expected to happen? or Not really. I did, well, I did one book about... Five years ago, I started it, and I was hoping that I would be able to carry on and do one like every other year or something, mm. but I was expecting it just to be me. But now I've got three other different editors who are sort of doing books for me as well. Chris Bryant, John Davis, and now John Arnold. We've done one on Blake Seven. We've had three on Doctor Who, mm -hmm. and we've got one coming up on the Target books. Oh, well. We've, yeah, we're doing a Bowie one. Oh, yes, I did read that on your Facebook page as well, actually. Yeah, yeah. somebody asked, well, somebody suggested it, and then loads of people piled in on the thread and said, what a great idea. Mm. I thought it was a bit too soon, really, but people seem to be enthused by it, so I just said, right. Oh, and John Arnold had already volunteered to edit it, so, and James Gent is sort of co-editing it with him. Yeah. They'd already volunteered, so I just said, go ahead. Why not? Why not? It's sort of become its own beast, really, this one, hasn't it? So, Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we're doing, well, um, well, later this year we'll announce. Um, well, I didn't really want to say what the titles are, just in case we don't do it, but sod it, why not? Why not? <laughs> well, this year, planning to do one on the Carry On films and one oh. on the Thunderbirds. Oh, yeah. excellent. And then at the end of the year, I think, well, I, this was going to be one, another one by me, but it might be won by me and all the other editors, depending how ridiculously big it gets. But we're just going to do one on British cult film. That sounds excellent, actually. That sounds brilliant. Mm. I, I, I'll say particularly the carry-ons, because the carry-ons are something I most certainly grew up with, uh, watching. Um, yeah. And it was something that they... I know it's supposed to be a Doctor Who podcast, but sod it. Um, yeah, yeah, why not? Why not? Um, but it was something that I um, always... We used to have at my um, junior school. Really? Yes, it, it was the um, last day of term. Um, they would show, before the summer holiday, I think summer holidays or Christmas holidays, I can't remember which way around it was, but they would show a carry-on film. They'd get the great big um, sort, of, sort of cine camera in, and they put, wow. the big, they put a big screen up on the, on the, on the, uh, the school stage, and we'd, I think we saw Karen again, Doctor, 
Um, and then Carry On Dick, I think, was another one I can remember watching. Blimey. I know Carry On Dick was one of the more risque ones towards the end of the Carry On series. I suppose, though, if you're junior school age, you're not going to get those jokes, are you? No. No, so you're it, just going to find the characters funny and the farcical elements funny, yeah, aren't you? Yeah, exactly. And Barbara Windsor's boobs let, being let loose at any given moment. So yeah, that was <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's what we were wolf whistled at. So yeah, it was um, yeah, great days, great days. And also wow. the, Th- the Thunderbirds one as well. I mean, that's another promo I grew up watching. Do you know both you know, of these things are things I'm not fans of? These are both books that people have brought to me. Mm. But when I say I'm not fans of, you know, if a Carry On film comes on the telly. And I'll think, oh, I don't really want to watch this. And then an hour and a half later, I'll find myself thinking, yeah, I didn't really want to watch that. But you know what? I did. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's one of those things you always find yourself watching. You don't, in- as yeah. you say, you never intend to watch them. Because I think I've seen them so many times now. Yeah. Um, but if you're sort of flicking through the channels, it's usually on something like ITV4 or something like that. They'll be usually yeah. on a, like a bank holiday afternoon or something. And um, yeah, I'll always end up watching it. Always. They're terrific fun, really. They are. There's something about them that just sort of reels you in. It's great. It's, it's so not my sense of humour. And yet, at the same time, it's just such an easy sense of humour to adapt to, really, isn't it? It is, isn't it, really? I, I suppose you could say they were doing the same joke over a period of, like, 20 films, weren't they? So... Yeah. No kidding. But no. if it works, you don't mess around with it. Exactly. If you've got a formula, you stick with it, don't you? Quite so. Quite so. So, anyway, shall we get onto the topic in hand, shall we? Well, we should, I suppose, I suppose we, we should, should do, do, yeah. We suppose we should do. Now, um, as this is a companion special, and um, each person that comes on gets a, a selected companion they wish to discuss, but it might be their favourite companion, might be their most hated companion. But this evening, JR, you have elected to talk about... Well, here's the thing. You said I have to choose a companion to talk about, mm. and I thought, right. So I, my short list would have been... I don't know, Jamie and Zoe, my favourites from the 60s. Mm -hmm. Or Ian and Barbara, also favourites from the 60s. Or Harry Sullivan, who was, you know, uh, Harry Sullivan's like a dream of a companion because he's he's just so much fun. He's such an aspirational figure as well. And then I thought Adric. Adric's one of those ones... Absolutely hated him at the time. <laughs> it's a actually, Marmite companion, yeah, though, isn't it? Yeah. Actually, got a lot more respect for him now, but he's so easy to talk about. So it could have been Adric. Hmm. Well, from the modern series, I th- I, Clara is uh, a very I, popular choice, but also yes. an absolutely fascinating character because hmm. I think she, I think that character was devised to represent something. Anyway, I'm going to do a podcast on it myself in a few weeks. Oh right, so okay. it wasn't Clara. So in the end, I just picked the one I fancied the most. <laughs> the, but your baser instincts took over. <laughs> yeah, they did, I'm afraid. They did. But also, I think um, this companion turns up in the most interesting fashion a companion had ever appeared in the series by this point mm-hmm. and also appears during a particularly interesting period in the series' history, and probably actually overlaps with the biggest, most significant single change that took place in classic Doctor Who. And if anybody's not guessed yet, I'm talking about the second Romana. Yes. Now, what? why Romana 2, as, as everyone seems to have uh, called yeah. it now? What, why Romana 2 and not, say, Romana 1, for argument's sake? Oh, well, who, who doesn't love Mary Tam? But... 
I don't know. There's just something about Lala Ward that appeals to me. That those those plummy tones and those delicate <laughs> features. I'm sorry, Phil. <laughs> but I think you know, as interesting as the key to time is, and as interesting as the character of Romana is during those stories, I think something much more interesting happens after she changes. Now, as you're talking about when when she changes, this was quite a shall I put it a contentious. Regeneration yeah. at the oh, time. Yeah, well, what Douglas Adams did with it was contentious indeed, wasn't it? Yes. Now, I, I'm going to be perfectly honest, um, and I've gone on record as saying this before, because we've, we've quite some time ago now, we did an um, audio commentary for Destiny, oh, Destiny, for Destiny yeah. the Daleks, yes. Um, and I went on record there, and many, many times before and since, that I am not Douglas Adams' biggest fan. No, I'm not, I'm not especially a Douglas Adams fan. No, I, I, I kind of hitchhikers love hitchhikers. Find the rest of the books kind of as they go on. God, there's a sort of diminishing returns thing going on there, I guess. Mm, yeah, I, I, I don't think it's just his sense of humour. It doesn't really like you were saying about the you earlier the Carry On films. It's right, not yeah. really your sense of humour. Um, it's the same thing with Douglas Adams and me. It's not my sense of humour. I tell you what it is though. Perhaps even more than that. When Douglas Adams is doing his own thing, he can get away with having that sense of humour because mm. it's wrapped up in his own stories. But if you try and sort of superimpose that sense of humour over Doctor Who, then you're kind of getting into a tricky area, aren't you? I think so, and I think this is what the premiere have with that Destiny of the Dalek story, um, which, uh, yeah, I mean, the opening scenes is pure Douglas Adams, really. It's really yeah. sort of quite, quite flippant with the show's history and regeneration, isn't it, at that, at that point? I tell you what, it's not a million miles away in many respects from the Tom Baker one where he keeps disappearing into the TARDIS and coming out in a new costume. But yes. he's coming out in different costumes whereas she's actually coming out with different bodies. And it's that twist is what annoyed people, isn't it? It is, yeah, it is. Uh, I think some people try to write that into so it becomes canonical or something. So it was the TARDIS that made the dirt and it was like a, a future projection of what she could look like. Or yeah. yeah, I love how people try to write it to fit their own view of it. I love it, but um, but it is it is what it is, and it, it's it's there. So, I mean, was was it that in particular that um, sort of think that's what caught you or caught? No, I tell you Romana what, it was. Too, or? It was the fact that she took on the face of um, Princess Astra. Astra, yeah, yeah. How, we, uh, you know, even in even with the Doctor. And even later on, when the Sixth Doctor has the same face as Commander Maxill, mm. which is just uh, a case of having cast the same actor twice and with a, a year or so in between. Yeah. But no, this was, a, this was quite astonishing, really, to actually have an actress be in a story and then say to that actress, look, you get along with Tom, you get along with the people who are making the programme, do you want to stay on and become the companion? And instead of getting rid of the companion you already have and taking her on as the new companion, instead, you keep her on as the companion you already have. Now, of course, if Romana hadn't been a, a Time Lord already, they'd never have been able to do that. No, but, no. But it is quite, it's quite an astonishing turn of events, really. It's quite, um, it's quite a brave thing to do, to be honest. It was at the time, and obviously... 
you know, actors had, you know, appeared in multiple stories throughout Doctor Who's history. Exactly, but, yeah. Yeah, but never to, to that extent of becoming one of the leads. The closest thing you've got is when Peter Purvis turns up in part three of The Chase and they like him so much they ask him if they'll come back in part six and stay on. Yes. But, you know, even then you've got... Well, actually, I've forgotten about Ian Martyr as well, actually, because he was in... Um... Carnival of Monsters. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, even then, he's coming back... Peter Purvis is coming back as a different character. They've dressed him up differently, given him a beard. There's two episodes in between where the actor doesn't appear. So audiences of the time aren't supposed to realise, recognise no. that it's the same actor. Or if they do recognise it's the same actor, you know, it's just one of those things in telly. Actors yeah. turn up in the same series in different roles. Yeah. So you just accept it and move on. But to have Romana regenerate into the body of somebody they've just recently met was just bizarre. And, and bizarre in a good way, I think. How, how do you mean in a in a in a good way? Because a lot of, well, a lot of it, people it, didn't like it at all, did they? Well, no, but I think the thing they didn't like was the regeneration itself. Like you say, the sort of Douglas Adamsy jokey regeneration where there's lots of bodies. Hmm. I think I liked. I don't know. I liked the idea. But Princess Astra, she's barely in Armageddon Factor. If you're going to be honest, she's like a. She's kind of. A principal lead, really, but so much of that story is just Tom Baker running around on his own. Well, yes, it is actually. I mean, a lot of the sort of I think a lot of the key to time stuff was was it, that was sort of beginning of the it was becoming the Tom Baker show, really, rather yeah. than than Doctor Who. There's a lot of his influence coming into the into the proceedings. Um, and of course, they had to rewrite the middle of the Armageddon factor when they ran out of money and couldn't afford actors. <laughs> so, uh, do, do you remember the two episodes in the middle are supposed to be set on the mirror planet? That's right, yeah. And it was supposed to have a mirror cast as well. When I say a mirror cast, I don't really mean a mirror cast. I mean, it was supposed to have a cast. It was supposed mm. to be a populated planet. But they were so desperately short of money, they just said, look, can we rewrite this so that he arrives on the other planet and it's deserted? So, in one fell swoop, they got rid of about a dozen actors. And sold themselves a fortune into the bargain. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there you go. There's two episodes of Tom Baker just running around in, almost entirely on his own. Yeah. Now, do you, how how do you feel that the relationship between this Romana and the Doctor, or I should say, the actress and Tom Baker? Um, oh yeah, yeah. Well, well, we, we, really we all know where it led thing, to, don't we? It? So, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you can tell from the start. I mean, obvi it's obvious that she got on with him. Yeah. Because otherwise, they wouldn't have asked her back. It was that. It was that chemistry that was obviously happening off screen that they obviously looked at it, the situation, and thought, well, what if we try and replicate this chemistry on screen? Hmm. And as early as City of Death, you can see it. Destiny of the Daleks, not so much, because Destiny of the Daleks is a Dalek story. It is. And, and a very muddled one at that, I feel. It, it is, but I like it. I don't think it's too bad a Dalek story. I was the right age for it when I was a kid. Uh, same here, because it had been such a long time since the Daleks were last in Doctor Who at that particular yeah. time. It was it four years at that point, I think. So, And that, that cliffhanger, you know, about halfway through episode two, I thought, hang on, are they, are they looking for Davros? And then I thought, no, they couldn't be looking Can't for Davros, be, could no. they? And I was about 10 or something at the time, so I've sort of got it in the back of my mind, Davros. And then when they turn around that corner and look in that room, and there he is, covered in cobwebs, and I just, my heart was in my mouth. 
I think every kid's uh, heart was in their mouth at that particular point. I think they, yeah. oh, that's mine certainly was anyway. Little... I didn't I didn't mind what happened after that. I tell you what I didn't like was the Mobellin costumes. I can understand now the sort of, it was 1979, it was the age of disco. But at the time, as a 10-year-old, you just think, oh my God, Doctor Who looks really embarrassing this week. Yeah, I always remember, um, I, was, <laughs> I was watching it around a, a school friend's house. Um and I'll seem to remember him saying that oh, when people got exterminated, oh, it, it was rubbish because they just sort of collapsed to the floor very, very slowly. Um, mm. And when you took off one of the Mavellans' battery packs, they sort of sort of wandered around a bit as if you know yeah. they're playing blind man's buff or something. Or you know, it was it was weird. They were just sort of stumbling around and fell over very slow. It's all very stagey and everything. And I always remember him saying, "That's yeah. rubbish. That is." But. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, that was it. When you, were, when you got to a certain age, 10, 11, 12, all of a sudden, you, you know, all, when you're six, all the kids sit in front of Doctor Who. But by the time you get to about 10, 11, 12, and you start to realise that the special effects really aren't all that special. Mm. And some of the acting's not all that special either. And it all looks a bit cheap. You either go with the stories or else you start going, yeah, right. I'm a bit too cynical for this. Yeah. And it sounds like you were the one who said, yeah, okay, I'll take it. And your friend was the one who said, right, no, too cynical for that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But that's the, far from, that's the beauty of the show. You sort of, you, you take what you want from it, really. And there are many, yeah. many, many things to take from it, you know. Um, but as, as sort of introductory stories go, I think as the, the, the plot rumbles on, I think that sort of her Romana does really sort of come into her own rather quickly. She kind of gets, uh, it's kind of an archetypal Doctor Who story, really. She gets separated from the Doctor. Yep. She goes off and she actually goes into the story and she has agency. And that's the important thing. She mm. has things to do and she does them under her own steam. And she's kind of got a step on that ladder already because she is supposed to be the character that we've had in the previous six stories. Yeah. So she already has a relationship with the Doctor. She doesn't need to prove herself. All that needs to happen, really, is that the actress proves herself to the audience that she's worthy of being in the show. And, of course, she'd already been in it for the previous six episodes in the Armageddon Factor, so Lala Ward kind of had a step up on that ladder, too. Yes. So it's... And this is what I mean when I say it's the most interesting introduction, because none of the things that you would expect to need in a character's introductory story need to be there because they've all already been done either with a different actress or with a different character yeah so it's kind of the weirdest introductory story in that you're not really introducing anything at all except of course you are Mm. never been a situation like it no there hasn't there really hasn't um no so after this sort of, I think a lot of people must have, I think, must have got over the shock of like Mary Tam's departure, quite sudden departure, only one series, um, yeah. and then Lala Ward taking over. She um, did a, um, she did a, oh God, I can't remember the name of the actress, Caroline John. Yes, indeed, that, she did. She did do a Caroline yeah. John. Yes. And now for the same reason as well, I think, not necessarily in terms of the actress, but in terms of who Romana was being the Doctor's equal, in the way that Liz Shaw was the third Doctor's equal, Indeed. you're kind of on a bit of a hiding to nothing. So when Lala Ward comes in, she plays a different kind of a Romana. And of course, with regeneration, you can do that. Oh, you can do. 
Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So she doesn't play a Romana who's less clever than the Doctor, because in stories like The Horns of Naimon and City of Death, she outclevers him. But Mary Tam's Romana was kind of the Doctor's equal in terms of force of personality. Yes. Whereas Lala Ward's Romana is a much mellower personality. And although she has her spiky moments, in general, she kind of allows, she allows Tom Baker to take the limelight. Very Whereas much so, yes. With Mary Tam, it was a case of the two of them sharing the screen together. There was kind of, there was that friction about who was really in charge, not in charge of the TARDIS or in charge of the story, but in charge of the screen. Whereas when Lala Ward comes on, it's... And I don't mean it in remotely a sexist way, but it's like she lets him back into the limelight and she's happy to be, you know, the pixie dust that floats around him and keeps him grounded. Well, is that, I mean, I think this is what happens because obviously the, the next story that she's in, which we just mentioned, City of Death, um, yeah. which is highly regarded as one of the... The, you know, the classics of like Tom Baker's tenure. Um, it's oh, it's of, one of, in my mind, it's one of the greatest Doctor Who stories of all time. Yes, and, well, it's regularly voted by yeah. quite a number of people, is that. Um, and probably, if you're know, going to be honest, City of Death is the reason I love Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who so much, because I think it shares so much in common with it. Yes, there is that sort of air about it, isn't there? Um, and I think, would you, would you agree that sort of for the first time there's sort of like um, and I think it's because of what was going on between Tom Baker and Lala Wald, there's almost like and because they're in Paris, the most romantic city yeah, on, the, on the planet, yeah, yeah. that you get a certain sort of almost romantic undertone between the Fourth Doctor and Romana. It's which, very understated, yeah, but it's but it's definitely there, and it's not so much. Obviously, there's chemistry between the actors. But then you kind of need a chemistry between the actors anyway, regardless of who the actors are, regardless of their gender. If there's going to be a doctor and a companion, if you've got no chemistry, it's not working. So there's a chemistry between William Hartnell and uh, William Russell and Jacqueline Hill. There's a chemistry between those three. So there's a chemistry in City of Death, but the chemistry is just tweaked that ever so slight bit. It's in that scene at the start where they're talking about whether they should fly. Yes. You know, when they're on the um, Eiffel Tower. It's there. It's in the way they read the dialogue. You know as well as I do that they, they, they aren't actually going to sort of launch themselves off the Eiffel Tower and fly down to the ground. No. So the dialogue in that scene is um, symbolic, really. They're not actually talking about flying. They're talking about, well, something else entirely. Yeah. That yeah. I shan't mention, really. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? That, I do, I do, yeah. Yeah, that that conversation between the two of them is, although it was obviously written by Douglas Adams and probably written in a hurry, he knew what the chemistry between those two actors were and he knew that if he wrote those dialogues in, that, that, that those lines of dialogue in, what you'd get is the actors reading the lines, ignoring what the lines mean, and you'd just get a scene where it's the two actors, you know, basically talking a bunch of nonsense, but you can see in their eyes and in their faces and in their body language exactly what's going on. Oh, yes, definitely. And I think that's probably what makes it one of the, the sort of the better stories of that period because this was a troubled time for Doctor Who, wasn't it? In, in particular yeah. with um, sort of Tom Baker's rampant ego. Um, and what yeah. we mentioned previously was um, severe, quite severe budget cuts as well. And, well, it and... wasn't so much that the budget was cut. It's that... If you 
budgeted, I don't know, random figure, if you budgeted £10,000 an episode uh, at the start of the year, by the end of the year, £10,000 would only buy you half what it had 12 months ago because inflation was so crazy. Yeah. Well, you're talking about the 70s after all, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, they budgeted for things and it's just, you know, they never knew at the start of the year what that money would be worth at the end of it. And... Well, you know, I, I, that's how you get to things like Horns of Nymon and Nightmare of Eden, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, because the, the follow-up story to City of Death was <laughs> Creature from the Pit, um, which is... Which has exa- a great first episode. It and does. And the rest of it's just pretty awful, really. It is, yeah. Um, and that's what I mean. It, it was sort of fairly, to my mind, it's fairly uneven, sort of, for Lalawal's first season. Um, it did sort of swing towards fast very, very quickly. Well... um, Creature from the Pit is the first one they recorded Mm. and if you look at it the costume is the thing that gives it away they had no idea what Lala Ward was going to be wearing No, so they just stuck her in a floaty dress in that first story and it sticks out like a sore thumb because throughout the rest of those five stories those other four stories in that season that she turns up in she has a very defined costume that fits in with her character Yes. Both the actress and the part she's playing uh, really well, really nicely. And then you've stuck it right in the middle. You've got Creature from the Pit where she's wearing something that neither Romana nor Lala Ward in a million years would have ever gone anywhere near. No, no. But she does look damn lovely in it. (laughs) (laughs) You're talking to a Mary Tam fan here, JR, so... (laughs) Oh, well, what can you say? What can you say? What can you say? It's the same woman after all. It is. It's all Romana. It is all Romana. 100% Romana. There you go. Oh, yeah. So, I mean... What, is but there... if you look at Creature from the Pit, actually, there's something yep. weird going on. They've uh, Creature from the Pit is essentially written for the previous Romana because at, at the time, you know, Creature from, it's the first one in and nobody knows quite what Lala Ward's going to do with it. Mm. So it's essentially written for the previous Romana. So you've got scenes like the one with the... Um, you know, the Jewish guys, for want of a better expression, because that's how they're played. Yes. Who are looking for the metal, the um, bandits. That's what the word I was looking for. They're bandits, basically, aren't they? That's it, yeah. And that stuff, you can imagine Mary Tam doing it. But so you've got this interesting situation where Lala Ward's come in. She's not quite sure how she's going to play it yet. And I think Destiny of the Daleks is where you find out how she's going to play it. And City of Death is where she plays it that way. Yeah. So it takes three stories to get there. So you've got this really weird scene in the middle of Creature from the Pit where you've got Lala Ward doing Mary Tam, but with not very much Lala Ward in it at all, really. She's kind of the haughty ice princess in that scene, as she is through a lot of that story. So it's really weird to get that story in the middle of the season because she's much more like Mary Tam there mm. than she will be by the time of City of, City of Death. And then, of course, by Nightmare of Eden... And Horns of Nymon, she's on a roll. She knows exactly what she's doing. Exactly, yeah. So, I mean, if, if there's, I mean, do you think there's any particular story where Lala Ward's um, interpretation of the of the character doesn't really work? Well, um, I think season eighteen is where it all goes to pot a bit. Well, I know at the time her and Tom weren't getting on at yeah. all, were they? It's it's that's one reason. Yeah. Um, the other reason, really, is because they wanted to iron out the humour. And if you yes. take the humour out of the relationship that 
Tom Baker and Lala Ward have on screen, then you're kind of robbing it of its charm. Do you think, however, though, that possibly at that time it, it was... It was it, oh, we know now it was, right, J&T just trying to sort of rein in Tom Baker a bit more. Oh, um, absolutely. Oh, you can see, you can completely understand why he did it, and he had to do it. Oh, he had to, it, yes. Yeah, you look at Nightmare of Eden and Horns of Nymon, they've both actually got really good scripts, but they look like dreadful pieces of telly because, basically, you've got the lead actor taking the piss. Well, you have, really, yeah. 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 And so they just look awful. And, of course, this is when they've run out of money, too. So they look cheap. They look cheap. They look tacky. You've got a leading man who's just walking through with, in, you know, completely indifferent to the lines of dialogue and the, you know, plot lines and storylines, in spite of the fact that they've both got good scripts. Mm. But to try and rein him in, you're kind of reining her in as well. Because yes. Part of because I, I think season seventeen is a season with a lot of charm and with some quite strong stories. Like I say, those two last two, they're strong stories. And I think by reining him in, you're kind of robbing him of being able to have the screen relationship with Lala Ward that he's been having for the last five stories. So there's a real change. You look at the Leisure Hive, and you look at. Horns of Nymon, mm. and they're both on fire. Regardless of what you think of this story, Tom Baker and Lala Ward are having the absolute time of their lives. Your very next episode is The Leisure Hive Part 1, and they both look bored out of their minds. They do. It's a very sort of melancholic take on the Doctor. Yeah. It really is. I think the whole series of, of that season is very melancholic, and it's sort of because it's, you know, um, it's the influence of uh, Christopher H. Bidmead. Yes. They wanted to, re- to return to some um, hard science. R- well, he said rather, he rather, wanted to return to it, but well, you look at the previous 17 years of Doctor Who, and I'm not entirely sure where he thought that hard science was. Well, me neither, actually. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he didn't like the sort of, like, um, I suppose, for want of a better expression, the, the, the frippery that had uh, yeah, gone, yeah. On, gone on before it. Um, actually, you look at season 18, and he talks about hard science, but all of those stories take place in fairy tale castles and they've got magic in them. Like a bunch of old guys chanting numbers is what keeps the universe together. You tell me that's hard science? That's pure fairy tale magic. Under the guise of block transfer computation. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know what he was talking about. And but, state, uh, state of Decay's got vampires in it for crying out loud. So. Yeah. Yeah. Full Circle's got monsters rising from the swamp. Monsters who start their lives as insects and then turn into reptiles and then turn into mammals. Yeah. You tell me where's the science in that? <laughs> I'm hard-pressed to find it, actually. Yeah, <laughs> but you know what I mean. It's, yeah, I like I, Full Circle. I think, I think it's... Uh, um, I, I don't mind the story, actually. I think oh, it's yeah. Quite, it's it's interesting. A, yeah. After... Leisure Hive and Meglos, Full Circle was an absolute breath of fresh air. Yes. Now, obviously, as we're talking about Full Circle, it introduces uh, another addition to the TARDIS crew. Yeah. The form of Adric. <laughs> yes. Um, how do you feel that changes the dynamics, particularly for Romana and the Doctor? I think the change has already happened, you know. Like I'm saying, you look at the Leisure Hive and Meglos as well, and mm. you've got a grumpy Doctor and a grumpy Romana. Whereas previously... You know, Horns of Nymon, City of Death, the two characters are having the absolute, an absolute ball. 
And yet here they are, bored, listless, grumpy already by this point in the season. And it's not entirely due to the stories. And it's not entirely due to the fact that Bidmead and John Nathan Turner are trying to take the humour out, the undergraduate humour, whatever you want to say. Mm. It's a combination of those things. And when Adric turns up, it's, it's almost like he's giving physical form to something that's already happening. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's sort of... Um, it's, it's, like, a, it's almost as like if they, they needed that third person to do the communication for the pair of them. Yeah, in some ways, yeah. Yeah, it was something to mediate almost uh, for, for them. Um, but obviously, I, th- I, mean, I would say it's quite a dour um, season anyway, that one. Yeah. By the time you get to Warrior's Gate, um, which is still uh, which is Romana's um, exit story. Actually, um, State of Decay is probably as good as that team gets in that season, isn't it? I, I actually the, quite like State of Decay. I think it's yeah. a, a, a very... And the relationships between the three of them, because I know Adric goes off and gets, you know, he, he get, he's the one who gets taken off by the vampires. So actually, he's shunted to the side for, hmm. you know, good two episodes. So you get to actually see, because it's a Terrence Dick script and because Peter Moffat's letting them just get on and do it. Yeah. He's sort of gone behind John Nathan Turner's back a bit on that story. It's a very un-John Nathan Turner story. Exactly. And I, think, and I think a large part of that is Peter Moffat saying, stuff the rewrites, let's go with the original script. Mm. And it, Sodom. Yeah. You know, they don't like it, Sodom. Yeah. So I think, actually, that's the one story in that season where you get to see a little bit of the old Tom and Lala magic. Yes. Mm. Yes, even though was it, it was that story where they don't actually look at each other for a long period of the, of the episode, didn't they? Because they... Yeah, there was a lot of bad feeling between the two of them. So, um, but I think that actually adds to it. To be honest, yeah, it gives you a sense that there's two people there. Whereas for the previous three stories, you'd almost, you know, they're, they're almost going through it like robots, a little bit, especially in Leisure Hive and Megloth. Yeah, some of Megloth is interminable, really. Yes, I don't, I don't dislike the story of Megloth. I think it's tremendous fun, but it's just some of the characterisation in it. Well, I think it could be a lot more fun if yeah. they were just if the actors were allowed to have a bit of fun, um, exactly, as yeah. Tom Baker and Alan Ward always always sort of did do before um, before this season. Um, but and in the middle of State of Decay, the location stuff is the sort of stuff famously where they wouldn't look. No, the other way around, isn't it? But you actually you actually kind of get a sense of them as people again in that story. You do, in spite of. It being for the opposite reason, maybe, but you—it's one where actually it feels like they're people again. Well, you always get the sort of the feeling if you if you sort of lock two time lords with big egos inside a TARDIS for a, a length of time, they're bound to get the ump with each other at some point. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's not yeah. all going to be plain sailing, is it? You have got those two big egos no. fighting each other. So, um, well, if anybody's anybody who's ever been in a relationship is going to know, there's ups and there's downs. Exactly, and that's how it works. Yes, indeed. And I think anyway. That, oh, sorry. Go I was, was going to say, I think that that works um, with Lala Ward's um, version of Romana because I think she's I well, not sort of you know having anything against Mary Tan's interpretation, um, but I think. Lala Ward's Romana had a lot more intelligence to her. Yeah, and humour. Not When I say humour, I don't necessarily mean the funny, but when I say humour, I mean a perspective on life. Yes. She's kind of... She's much more human, really, is what it is. Yeah, um, and she knew how to take the Doctor down a peg or two 
just with yeah. a, little, a little a little aside now and again would uh, sort of burst his bubble somewhat, um, which I think was a, you know a great aspect of Lala Ward's version of of, of Romana. I really do. Um, but when you get to Warriors Gate, I mean, how yeah, do you, I was going to say I cut you off. Let's get back to Warriors let's get Gate. Warriors Gate. Um, how do you feel that is as an exit? St- uh, excuse me, an exit story for her. I think it's awful to be honest. It's I quite, quite like I quite like Warriors Gate. I think I think that it's really interestingly directed, and I think it's a really interesting script. Yeah. Now the thing about interesting is that doesn't necessarily mean it's easy to like, and I don't think it's easy to like Warriors Gate, but I think it's one of those stories it's really easy to respect. But as for the Doctor and Romana, at the end when he says you were the noblest Romana of them at all, mm. uh, of um, of them all, it it just says them those were it. it, it the way he says those words, he makes them completely empty. And the way she just dismisses them and walks off means it's almost a completely empty gesture. You just you get to the end of that story and you can't feel anything when she leaves. Even though, ostensibly, Romana's been the companion for three seasons. And the reason why is because, again, both Tom Baker and Lala Ward, they're not just split up for almost the entire story... They're split up and the pair of them seem to be going through the motions. Yes. There's no sense in that story of any connection between the characters, you know, between those two characters and one another, or between those two characters and what's going on around them. I never get the sense that Romana cares about the Tharrells, so I've no idea why she's leaving at the end to go off with them. Well, it it does seem to be... um... If you, if you look back also at um, Leela's exit, I mean, that came out of nowhere. Mm. Absolutely out of nowhere. And I think this is along the similar sort of lines. And I don't think yeah. there was a lot of thought given in how to exit a character properly. They foreshadowed it a bit by doing the thing, oh, Gallifrey's calling, they want you back. Mm. But I mean, that seems to me just to be thrown in there to give her an excuse to stay in Space. Yeah. Well, it's a you know, similar, similar sort of thing to um, Sarah Jane's exit. Again, yeah. Gallifrey came a call and the Doctor had to go and leave her behind. And, and, and even now, um, I think it's better handled than Romana's exit. But even that, I thought it was a little bit rushed. It came out of nowhere. Oh, it was an absolute nonsense. The only reason that works is because the two actors who yeah. are actually giving it something and making you feel something. Indeed. Whereas at Warrior's Gate, you've got completely the opposite effect. Nobody cares. Nobody's bothered, and she just kind of disappears. Do you think, though, that um, I'm just sort of putting this out as a sort of almost like a devil's advocate kind of question? But now, when uh, in the new series of Doctor Who, when a companion leaves, um, you're given a lot of foreshadowing, and it's a very, very big deal, and it's very yeah. emotional. Do you think that? Because I think it has to be. Yeah, but do you think now because it's because we're sort of spoilt to to, to that degree? It almost the point it is almost overblown when when somebody leaves Doctor Who, but back it kind then, of makes it look even worse yes. when you go back to these old stories. Yeah, I think it was already pretty bad to be honest. I, you know, I was old enough when Leela left to think, what the hell's going on here? And I was only what eight or something. Yeah, yeah, same you know, here actually. Yeah, yeah. Even by that age, you're already thinking, nah, somebody's, somebody's, you know, missed a trick there because that's not how it should have gone down. No, no, it's a very, very sort of cold... I, I'd say maybe, maybe Rex, it does kind of make sense because it is a very, very cold series, season yeah. 18. Yeah, I mean, it, it fits 
basically. That's the best thing you can say about it. Look, the, the one thing I would say is, in the new series, you're taking on an emotional journey with the characters. Mm. So you see everything from Rose's perspective. And, you know, they have this thing where, you know, if it was down to willingness... At the end of the first story every year, the Doctor would have 15 companions on board. Yes. Let's face it, who wouldn't want to go on the TARDIS and journey through time and space? So you have to find an emotional reason for the Doctor to want the companion to be on board. Hmm. And then when you get to the end of the series, you have to find a reason that would separate the two of them. Because just the companion saying, oh, you know what, Doctor, I think I'll just go off and get married doesn't work no and Stephen Moffat proved that by having the companions get married at the end of series five and then stick around for another year traveling in the TARDIS together yeah so it's a completely different thing and in the classic series if a companion left and her last story wasn't very good and there wasn't a very good reason given and it was all just a bit of an excuse to get rid of her because the actress's contract was up and she wasn't renewing it he just kind of forgave it and moved on because in the next story, even if it had been a brilliant exit, you'd have forgotten all about her anyway because, you know, you were, in, you were more interested in, you know, what the monster was next week. Yes. Well, that was certainly at that age. I, I certainly was, actually. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, have you dipped into any of the Big Finish audios? Because I personally haven't. It's, it's not anything I, I know, any, you know much about, to be honest. Um, I've not heard any of the Lala Ward ones. You I've haven't? Heard, no, I've heard Leela ones and um, Romano, the first Romano. I've not heard any of the Lala Ward ones yet, no. No, is, is it something you would consider dipping into, or is audio not really your 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 bag? Um, I do do audio, but I tend to not do Doctor Who. <laughs> enough. I tend to do other things. Yes, that that is nice to do now and again. Actually, yes. I I don't. I will listen to some Doctor Who, but generally speaking, Doctor Who I like on the telly. Mm. And if I'm doing other things like books, or if I'm doing audios, then I tend to do books on something else or audios on something else. So I mean, I wouldn't avoid um, Lala Ward on Big Finish, but by the same token. I've not sought her out. No, no. Does that mean to say you never watched Dimensions in Time either? Yeah, no, I've, I've watched Dimensions in Time. <laughs> Who hasn't? Who hasn't? I know. It's, it's, it was like a, a, a shameful deed from your past that you, know, you dare not talk about. Yes, yeah, so I've seen Dimensions in Time. Um, the yeah. trouble with Dimensions in Time... No, I don't think you can say what the trouble with Dimensions in Time <laughs> is in one sentence, can you? <laughs> Oh, well, it, it, yeah, I mean, I mean, they tried to do something a bit more than just a, a brief cameo with um, Lala Ward's Romana. At least they tried to give her a bit more to do before she was uh, sort of unceremoniously dumped um, out They of should it, have so. just done a comedy sketch. You know, cause that's why Curse of Fatal Death works so well, because it doesn't take itself too seriously and it doesn't try to be proper Doctor Who. No. There's dimensions in time. You can't work out whether it's actually trying to be proper Doctor Who, but it you you look at it and you think it seems to be trying to be proper Doctor Who, and yet obviously it's just frivolous and insignificant and insubstantial. Yes, and got the highest viewing figure. If you're going to talk about viewing figures, yeah. it got the highest ever viewing figures for Doctor, Who, which hasn't been beaten yet, and that's quite a a a, a weird thing to come out of all of this. Yeah. Really Although, you know, I, 
I never complain about Dimensions in Time because it's 15 minutes with all those actors for charity. Exactly. Uh, in yeah. a, you know, three, four years, four years after the series had finished. So I think we should cherish the fact that it exists, to be frank, and just ignore the fact that it's a load of rubbish. Yes, indeed. Indeed, <laughs> I think we should too. <laughs> now, something I ask everybody um, to just sort of round up the, the conversation. Oh, um, go on, yeah. Yeah, what, I mean, it's a very, very easy and probably quite a cliche question, actually. But um, if you had to select one Lalawald Doctor Who story, as, say like your, your rainy day oh, wow. story, what, what would it be? I've basically answered that already, haven't I? Let's tell you, City of Death. City of Death. But you know what? Let's throw City of Death on one side for a minute, because City of Death does stand out of the ten stories with Romana in, 11 yeah. if you're going to count Sharda. City of Death stands so far above the rest of them that it's not really a fair... It's not really a level playing field, it's so let's not, ignore City of Death and okay. choose one of the others. Okay. Um... Well, given that the subject is Lala Ward, I think I think the one that best shows her off, in spite of the fact that in other areas it doesn't show off anything very well at all, is the Horns of Nymon, funnily enough. Okay. If I was going to watch a story for Lala Ward and I couldn't choose City of Death, I think I'd have to choose the Horns of Nymon. Now, that's quite an interesting choice, really, because that is really the Graham Crowden show, that one, isn't it? Yeah. But if you look at the Doctor and Romana, she's playing the Doctor and he's playing Romana in that one. Yes, that's quite true, actually, yes. Yeah. It's a kind of a role reversal there. Yeah, so, so you'd have to, so, you know, if you were going to do it for Lala Ward, that's the one you'd have to That's pick, the one you go I for. Think, yeah. I don't think I would, I would expect you to have picked that one, to be honest. No. You. <laughs> but I tell you what, the Horns of Naimon, it's dreadful, but... Like I say, it's got a great script. It's just that everybody's sending it up or doing it a disservice. Yeah. So what? But it might be dreadful, but it's also tremendously good fun. It is good fun. And I think that's probably the, the best thing to, to think about that, that series, uh, well, season yeah. 17, series 17, what you call it. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it was fun. It was fun. There's a, there's a lot to take away from it. Not all of it good, mind you. But <laughs> no. no. But, you know, it's, it's fun to watch, though. It is fun to watch. So, oh, it's it, bad fun. Is that what we're saying? Bad fun. We're we going to coin a phrase for it. The horns of Nymon. It's bad fun. Bad fun. Well, it's yeah. not that, that, that when they say, um, you know, what, what's your guilty pleasure for television? But, but if you like it, it's not a guilty pleasure, really, is it? Yeah, no. I mean, if you're a Doctor Who fan, let's face it, you've got to take the rough with the smooth anyway. Well, yeah. you know, you always did in the classic years. Yes. Not necessarily so much these days, although, you know, every now and again these days you get a bit of a stinger of an episode too so even these days it's not entirely plain sailing no it's not it's not no for for every you know sort of um <laughs> i was gonna say sort of blink you get a fear her don't you so yeah and yeah. for every heaven sent you get to sleep no more yes indeed there we go so i think on that note should we should we end that there then <laughs> i think we should before we start slagging off doctor who <laughs> yeah yeah well, JR, thank you very, very much for, for joining me this evening. And before we, um, before we sign off, um, would you care to point everybody in the direction of your wonderful podcast? Oh, yeah, Blue Box Podcast. It's on the Starburst Magazine website. And, you know, Google does it for you. But starburstmagazine.com and then in amongst the podcasts, there's the Blue Box Podcast. There you go. And obviously, everybody, don't forget to search out your copy of You and Who Else as well. 
Damn right. If you haven't bought it yet and you're listening to this, then put your headphones down and get yourself on the internet and buy yourself a copy. Right now. And actually, you know what? I don't write these books. I only edit them. So I can say with almost total impartiality that they're some of the best books I've ever read. There you go. I think that's a, that's a glowing tribute to them, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. JR, thank you very much. Thank you, Phil. It's been, well, it's been bad fun. <laughs> <laughs> to the Who's He podcast. Please visit our website at whos-he-podcast.co.uk. You can also follow us on Twitter at who's underscore he underscore podcast. And please also join the Who's He podcast Facebook group. The Who's He podcast is a member of the Doctor Who Podcast Alliance. Mm-hmm.